It's uh, great to see all of you here uh, today to be able to worship the Lord together, as Mike said, through the songs that we sing and, and also uh, by opening our hearts to him and letting him uh, speak to us. And with that in mind, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter uh, 14, we're going to be looking at uh, a number of uh, passages uh, today, uh, and we'll be looking at a number of verses in Mark 14 and Mark 15, and we'll bring in some help from some of the other gospel writers. And if you want to give a title uh, to the message this morning, it would be the answer Jesus died to give. The answer Jesus died to, to give. We're at the tail end of our series on the identity of Jesus, and we began this series in Mark chapter 16, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And he also, in that same conversation, asked them, who do you say that I am? And then we went from there to Mark chapter 4, where the disciples are looking at Jesus and saying, who is this whom the wind and the seas obey? We then went to Luke 5, where we see some religious leaders who are staring at Jesus and saying, who is this who blasphemes? And then last week, we found ourselves in Luke 7, where some people are seated around a dining table, and they're staring at Jesus and they're asking the question, who is this who forgives even sins? And what we have been doing as we've looked at these passages is we've tried to understand the question that's being asked and the context of those questions. We've pondered the questions. We've also pondered the answer uh, to those questions as we're trying to explore the identity of Jesus as it is revealed in the gospel accounts. Well, one of the things that's been missing in all of these previous passages and incidences is at no point has anyone ever approached Jesus themselves and asked him, who are you, providing Jesus the chance to give a direct answer to that uh, question. But today... Uh, in Mark chapter 14 and 15, we're going to observe that this happens. Jesus is approached and he, has, he is asked in a direct way, who are you? We're going to see two questions that Jesus is asked. The first question is, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? That's about as direct as one can get. Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And then a few hours later, Jesus is going to be asked another question, and that is, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, the first question that you see on the screen is going to be asked by the most powerful Jew in Israel, by the high priest of Israel. The second question is going to be asked by one whom we can maybe say was the most powerful Roman in Israel, or at least Judea. That's Pontius Pilate, and he's going to ask Jesus the question, are you the king of uh, the Jews? 
Jesus is going to be asked both of these questions. He's going to answer both of these questions in a direct and clear way. And Pontius Pilate and the high priest are going to respond to Jesus' answer by deciding that he should die because of his answers. And Jesus is going to end up suffering many things. He will be crucified and he will die. And yet, amazingly, as Jesus breathes his last on the cross, there is a Roman centurion who is standing there at the foot of the cross, staring at Jesus. And he says, based on what he sees, truly, this man was the son of God. How ironic is that? Jesus is crucified for saying, yes, I am the Son of God. Yet in His dying, that is the very thing that persuades the centurion that He is, in fact, the Son of God. Jesus' enemies crucify Him because they didn't like His answer to their questions. Yet in sentencing Him to death, they unwittingly provide Jesus with the ultimate opportunity to answer the question on the centurion's heart regarding the identity of Jesus. And how frustrating that must be for Satan. How frustrating. Satan throws everything he can at Jesus in order to bring about his death. And yet standing there at the scene of Satan's greatest triumph is a Roman centurion who observes the way Jesus dies and concludes from that that this man was certainly the Son of God. For the rest of the centurion's life, this would have been his testimony. People would ask him, when did you come to faith in Jesus? When did you come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And what persuaded you? Uh, the centurion's testimony would not be, oh, you know, I saw him do some miracles. I saw him raise the dead. And that's when I believed the centurion wouldn't even say, you know, it's when I saw that Jesus was raised from the dead himself uh, that I believed that he was the son of God. No, this centurion would forever say in his testimony, no, it was when Jesus was hanging upon the cross. It was when he breathed his last. Something about the way that he died left me convinced that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. That's amazing to me. What we observe and what we will observe uh, in the passages we look at today is that Jesus did not simply die because of His answer to these questions. His dying was His answer to these questions. The cross of Christ is Christ's greatest self-revelation of all. Amen? Um. I don't know if you guys have heard of the book. It's called Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. How many of you have heard of the book? The guy who wrote uh, this book, um, I believe, teaches creative writing at UCR, and he teaches uh, elsewhere, quite an accomplished individual, uh, Reza uh, Aslan. And he is a Muslim and he came out with this book, and it was number one on the New York Times bestseller list and been in the top, you know, uh, 50 for a while. 
Uh, he's a Muslim, and he has spent the last 20 years of his life studying uh, the historical Jesus and studying the gospel accounts. And he wrote uh, this book in order to offer to the world the Jesus of history that he has come to discover. And in the book, he suggests that, you know, we can't really trust the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, but there are some clues in those accounts that are perhaps trustworthy that can lead us to the real historical Jesus that lies somewhere hidden behind uh, some of the legends and the myths and the stories that the gospel writers tell. And he says if you can you know, identify those clues that are in the gospels and you work hard enough, you can discern the real Jesus of history who is quite different than the Jesus that is portrayed in the gospel accounts. And the Jesus of history, in his opinion, is this. Listen to what he says. He says the Jesus before Christianity was the politically conscious revolutionary who 2,000 years ago walked across the Galilean countryside gathering followers for a messianic movement with the goal of establishing the kingdom of God, but whose mission failed. Whose mission failed when he was arrested and executed by Rome for the crime of sedition. The question we're asking is, was his death a failure? Did his execution on the cross mean that his messianic plan had failed in some way. If the Roman centurion were here with us this morning, he would say the death of Christ was no failure at all. In fact, his death was the very thing that convinced me that he was indeed the Son of God. And as we go through the message this morning, what, what I want you to do is I want you to always keep that Roman centurion on your brain because everything's going to move uh, towards this moment at 3 p.m. on Good Friday when this Roman centurion looks at Jesus as he breathes his last and comes to the conclusion that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Uh, so I want you to think of this Roman centurion and in God's sovereign plan at 3 p.m. It's like Jesus has a divine appointment with this Roman centurion at 3 p.m. on Good Friday and we're going to observe the sequence of events that unfold uh, that bring us to this amazing moment when this centurion is beholding Jesus as he breathes his last and concludes that he was truly the Son of God. Most of the story as it unfolds looks truly awful. It seems like it is spinning wildly out of control. Yet in reality, God is sovereign. He's in total control. Jesus is completely sovereign and in control. And this story unfolds itself for the benefit of this Roman centurion and for all of us. Indeed, Christ's death was a fulfillment of the plan of God and it provided the most compelling answer of all to the question, who is this? So let's go on that journey. We'll observe eight developments that led to the centurion's conclusion that Jesus was indeed uh, the Son of God. And development number one begins in Mark chapter 14, verse uh, 61, where 
Jesus is asked, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus answers the high priest saying that, yes, he is the Christ. In Mark chapter 14, verse 61, it says, keep in mind, Jesus has been betrayed. He's been arrested. He's brought before the Sanhedrin, which was the highest ranking authoritative body in Israel at this time. Many accusations are being brought against him. None of them are sticking because those testifying against him cannot agree in their testimony against him. And so the high priest steps forward at this point of the proceedings and it says the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? So that's a direct question. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? Are you the long expected one? Are you the son of the blessed one? In other words, the son of God. In Matthew's account, Matthew has the high priest not just asking the question, but actually demanding that Jesus answer this question. In Matthew 26, verse 63 The high priest says to Jesus, I adjure you by God. Tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he's asking the question and demanding an answer from uh, Jesus. And so how does Jesus answer this question? This is an amazing opportunity for Jesus to make it very clear who he is. And by the way, in this book, Uh, Zealot, uh, Aslan uh, talks, he describes this actual conversation that is taking place between Jesus and the high priest. And listen to what he says. He says, in the entire first gospel, and in his mind, that's Mark, that's the gospel we're in, there exists not a single definitive messianic statement from Jesus himself, not even at the very end when Jesus stands before the high priest, that's this moment, and somewhat passively accepts the title that others keep foisting on him. Well, let's observe and see how passive Jesus is in accepting this title. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one. And by the way, in saying I am, it's an allusion, no doubt, to Exodus 3, uh, which is the name of Jehovah. I am that I am. Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. Uh, I am the Son of the Blessed One. I am the Son of God. I am, I am. That's his answer. And then to make things abundantly clear, Look at this, 62. He says, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. By the way, quoting again from uh, Zealot regarding this incident, Aslan, the author, says this, Jesus makes his clearest and most concise statement This is the clearest statement he seems to make regarding his messianic identity. But then he says it is muddied with an ecstatic exhortation borrowed directly from the book of Daniel that once again throws everything into confusion. 
Well, does this throw things into confusion? Look at this. Jesus said, I am. I am the Son of God. I am the Son of the Blessed One. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The high priest would know this. Everyone in the room would know this, that Jesus' favorite designation of himself throughout the gospel accounts is Son of Man. That's the way that he generally refers to himself. They would know he's talking about himself. And when Jesus says, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, there's no doubt about it. Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man that is spoken about in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel is looking into the future and Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Jesus is saying, that's me. I am the son of man that Daniel saw in Daniel 7. I am the one who will be presented before the ancient of days, God the Father, and he will give me a kingdom and peoples around the world of every language will serve and worship me and my kingdom will last forever and it will never be destroyed. He's saying, I am that son of man spoken about in Daniel 7. Jesus is not muddying the waters here and making things less clear. He's not throwing everything into confusion. He's advancing his thought. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. I am the Son of Man that is described vividly in Daniel chapter 7. When Jesus says to the high priest, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, he is clearly alluding to Psalm 110, verse 1, where David, the psalmist, says, Jehovah said to my Lord. Keep in mind, David is king. He's the most powerful man uh, among all the people of Israel. And yet he's saying, Jehovah said something to my Lord. That's the Messiah. The Jews understood that as referring to the Messiah Jehovah says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is saying, I am the one that was being spoken about in Psalm 110, verse 1 and following. I am the one that God the Father is going to give a seat at his own right hand and subjugate all enemies under my feet, making my enemies, all of them, a footstool for my feet. How much more clear can Jesus be? I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the Anointed One, I am the Son of God, I am the one that the Ancient of Days will give a worldwide kingdom to, and peoples the world over will serve and worship me, and my kingdom will last forever, it will never be destroyed, the Father will give me a seat at His right hand and subjugate all of my enemies under my feet." That's my answer to your question. Am I the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? 
Well, how does this answer go over? Um, Here's how it goes over. Jesus answers the high priest saying that he is the Christ. The second development is that Jesus is condemned to death for his answer. He is condemned to death for his answer. Here's how the high priest responds in verse 63. And tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? And tearing his clothes, he is conveying grief and alarm and moral outrage. Uh, It is conveying the fact that he is upset by what he has heard when in truth he couldn't be happier because now he has something that can stick against Jesus. He tears his clothes and he said, what further need do we have of witnesses? We don't need to be calling any more witnesses. We need no other accusers to be brought before us. What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you, he says, to the other members of the Sanhedrin? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. This is leadership. And how objective is he being here? Jesus gives his answer. The high priest tears his clothes. And then he says, we need no more witnesses You all have heard his blasphemy. So he's making clear his opinion of what Jesus has said. And then he says, how does it seem to you? So here's the high priest with his clothes torn, labeling what Jesus has just said blasphemy. And he says, let's put it to a vote. Not surprisingly, they all unanimously condemned him to be deserving of death. Why did they do that? Well, technically, they're doing this because of Jesus' answer to the question Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Once they render this verdict, it is as if all hell begins to break loose. Evil is unleashed in the hearts of these members of the Sanhedrin. And the text tells us they began to spit upon Jesus. They blindfolded Jesus. They began to punch Jesus repeatedly. And they began saying to him in Matthew's gospel, as they would punch him, they would say, prophesy you, Christ, who is it that hit you? So they're mocking his claim to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. By the way, they will find out at the judgment when they stand before Jesus that he knew, he knew who it was that hit him. I would hope that some of these individuals later came to faith in Christ and received His mercy and His grace. If not, they will be judged for their sins against Jesus. After this, they consulted with other religious leaders and they handed Jesus over to Pilate, the Roman governor. And that leads to the third development, and that is that Jesus answers Pilate that He is the King of the Jews. So they hand Him over to Pilate. And they don't go to Pilate and say, hey, you know, we're handing him over to you because he says he's the son of man referred to in Daniel 7. Pilate wouldn't have cared about that. Uh, They would have taken the messianic terminology and said, he says that he's king of the Jews. That's something that Pilate and any Roman official would have cared deeply about. And so Pilate, that's his focus with Jesus. It's the first thing that Pilate inquires about in Mark 15 in verse 2 it says and Pilate questioned him are you the king of the Jews and answering Jesus said to him it is as you say literally 
Jesus' reply is, you say, you say, which in our language today would be the equivalent, equivalent of you said it. Someone might ask us a question and, and the answer is yes, but we'll reply by saying you said it. And that's an affirmative reply, but with a catch, Jesus is giving a qualified yes. Yes, I am, but Pilate, you're the one choosing the language here. I am the king of the Jews. You're right in saying that, but not in all of the sense that you're thinking of when you ask me this question. Uh, The cool thing is we're not left to speculate about what was going on between Jesus and Pilate. We're not left to read their minds. In John's gospel, in John chapter 18, John unpacks a little more of the exchange regarding this very topic between Jesus and Pilate. In John 18, verse 33, it says, And Pilate said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And among the things that Jesus says by way of reply to this question is this. Jesus answered, My kingdom, or this could be translated, My kingship. My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingship is not of this realm. So Pilate, when you ask, am I the king of the Jews? I know what you're thinking. And I want to clarify that what you're thinking does not capture the real picture of who I am. Pilate is listening to Jesus and he's still obsessed on this question in John's gospel. It says, Pilate, in verse 37, therefore said to him, so are you a king? That's what he wants to know. That's what he wants to exact from Jesus by way of reply. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. We know that Pilate received these words from Jesus as an affirmative answer to the question, are you the king of the Jews? We know that because in the ensuing narrative, Pilate at least twice refers to Jesus as the king of the Jews. And when he's crucified, what is the charge that Pilate writes? To go over Jesus, the king of the Jews. So Pilate is clearly understanding Jesus to be saying, yes, I am the king of the Jews. But Jesus is clarifying what he means by that in a way that leaves Pilate not really so worried about Jesus being guilty of treason. And he wants to be able to let Jesus go because he doesn't see Jesus as a threat at at this point. So Jesus answers Pilate's question that he is indeed the king of the Jews. How does that go over with Pilate? Uh, Well, that leads to the fourth development, and that is that Jesus is sentenced to death by crucifixion for his answer to Pilate. He is sentenced to death by crucifixion for his answer to Pilate. It says in verse 3, And the chief priests, as soon as Jesus provided this answer, Yes, I am the king of the Jews, the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. Pilate was questioning him again, saying, Do you make no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. That's intriguing to me. 
A lot of accusations are brought against Jesus. He doesn't answer or respond to any of them. But to the question, are you the king of the Jews? He does answer that because that's an important answer that Jesus wants to provide. Well, when you read the gospel accounts at this point, Mark and the others, you realize that Pilate did not initially want to crucify Jesus. And so he figured out ways to get out of it. And the first way to get out of it was he realized, you know, this time of year, the Jews asked me to release a prisoner uh, that they want released. And I normally grant their request and release one prisoner. And he's realizing these religious leaders have brought Jesus to me. They've clearly done this out of envy. Jesus apparently is popular with the masses, with the people. And so they're jealous that Jesus seems to have the affections of the multitude. And so Pilate's like, I know what I'll do. I will ask them, hey, do you want me to release Jesus? I'll ask the multitude that's now assembled here in front of me. I'll ask them, do you want me to deliver Jesus to you? And he was fully expecting the crowd that had gathered to say a resounding yes to that question. And so in Mark 15, verse 9, Pilate said, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? But look at what happened. The chief priest stirred up the multitude to ask him to release Barabbas for them instead. This crowd that had gathered had been manipulated by the Jewish religious leaders. And answering again, Pilate was saying to them, Then what shall I do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And he was kind of hoping that they would say, well, can you release him also? Give us two prisoners. Pilate would have granted that probably. What shall I do with him? But they shouted back, crucify him. But Pilate was saying to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Well, Pilate comes up with one more way to get out of this. Um... And that is he tries to throw it back on the Jews. Like, well, if you guys want him to be crucified, in John 19, verse 6, he said to the Jews, well, then you guys crucify him yourself. If you want him to be crucified so bad, then you guys go ahead and do it. You see, the religious leaders wanted Jesus crucified. They wanted him dead, but they did not want to do the deed because they would lose favor with the people. They did not want the record to show that they killed Jesus. But if they can shovel this off onto the Romans and Jesus gets crucified for treason and the Romans did that, they can always point to the Romans and say, hey, you know, they did it. Jesus committed treason and that's what happened to him. It's not us who who killed him. The Romans did. Pilate knows this and so he tries to throw it back at them and he says, You guys crucify him yourselves. And so the Jewish leaders are, they go into overdrive and thinking, we got to somehow get this back in his lap to make sure he's the one who does this and executes Jesus. And they come up with an ingenious way of doing this. It says in John 19, verse 7, the Jews answered Pilate, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. As the story unfolds, it says, as a result of this, in verse 12, Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, 
If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So your boss, Pilate, who is Caesar, if you let him go, you are no friend of your boss. And if word gets to the emperor, to the Caesar, that you let a man go who was guilty of claiming to be king, you yourself might be deemed guilty of treason yourself. Well, that resonates with Pilate in John 19, verse 14. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. Notice the language here uh, of kingship. Behold, your king. And they therefore cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So Pilate then delivered him to them to be crucified. Now the deed is done. The paperwork is signed. Jesus is sentenced to die. Death by crucifixion for his claim to be king for treason. Well, he's handed over to the Roman soldiers. And the Roman soldiers, before they began the journey to the place of his crucifixion, thought that they would have a little bit of fun at Jesus' expense. And that brings us to the fifth development, and that is that Jesus is mocked by the Roman soldiers for his answer to Pilate. Now keep in mind, guys, don't forget about that Roman centurion that Jesus has an appointment with at 3 p.m. basically. And just ponder of the million things that are happening here, the million things that Jesus is doing here, ponder all that Jesus is willing to undergo in order to make that appointment, to keep that appointment with that Roman centurion and to provide that centurion a real glimpse of his person, his sovereignty and his character and to reveal himself to that centurion as truly the son of God. What love Jesus has for the centurion and for all of us. We see as the events unfold, bringing us to that moment of discovery by the centurion that Jesus is mocked by the Roman soldiers for his answer to Pilate says, and after having Jesus scourged, so Jesus would have been, had his hands and arms tied around a a large stone. The clothes would have been stripped off of his back. He would have been lashed with a leather whip that had various strands at the end. This was not just a whip that would smack the surface of one's skin uh, embedded to the end, into the end of these strands of this Vicious whip were pieces of sharp bone and metal and iron that would tear into the flesh like teeth and shred the body of the victim. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells about an occasion when one prisoner was scourged with such severity that his internal organs were hanging out. Uh, and another occasion where the bones were visible. This is a vicious process, and there was no limit to the number of times that they could lash the body of the prisoner. And Roman soldiers would even take turns if they were getting tired and relentlessly scourge their prisoner. So this was an awful thing to experience, and sometimes it ended the life of the prisoner right there, even before they might have been crucified But Jesus is scourged 
And Pilate says he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. Verse 17 of Mark 15. And they dressed him up in purple. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to acclaim him. Hail, King of the Jews. You claim to be the King of the Jews? We're going to treat you accordingly. Hail, King of the Jews. And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting at him and kneeling and bowing before him. And after they had mocked him, they took the purple garment off of him and put his garments back on him. So Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews. and They make sport of Jesus for that answer that he delivered to Pilate. They take a crown of thorns and braid it together, put it on his head. And the other gospel writers tell us they put a reed in Jesus' right hand. And that was probably the reed that they would then take out and beat his head, beating the crown of thorns deeper into his brow. They would bow before him. They would spit at him and they would make a mockery of Jesus because of his answer to Pilate saying, yes, I am the king of the Jews. Jesus endures all of that. The sixth development is that Jesus is actually crucified for his answer to Pilate. He's been sentenced to die by crucifixion. Now that's actually carried out. He is crucified for his answer to Pilate. It says, and they led him out to crucify him and they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull and they crucified him. They would have nailed him his hands to the cross and his feet to the cross and hoisted the cross into place and they would have crucified him. We know from the gospel accounts that the crucifixion began at nine in the morning and Jesus breathed his last at three in the afternoon. He was on the cross for a total of six hours. It says they crucified him and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. That's why Jesus was crucified, because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He died from a human standpoint for his answer to Pilate's question, saying, I am the king of the Jews. And even while Jesus is hanging on that cross, abandoned by God and by man, hanging naked in utter humiliation upon that cross to add insult to injury, a seventh development. Jesus is mocked by the Jewish religious leaders for his answers to the high priest and to Pilate. We see both of his replies to the high priest and Pilate coming together in the language of those who are mocking him at this point. As he's hanging on the cross, in Mark 15:31 it says in the same way the chief priest also along with the scribes were mocking him among themselves and among the things they were saying verse 32 let this Christ let this Messiah the king of Israel now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe he claims to be the Messiah okay we'll let this Messiah come down from the cross and avoid dying so that we may see him come down from the cross and we'll believe We'll believe. 
Let me ask you guys, if Jesus had taken them up on that and called their bluff and supernaturally came down from the cross, would they have believed? Would they have believed? The answer is a resounding no, because they were not disbelieving in Jesus for lack of evidence, lack of demonstrations of miraculous power. They disbelieved in him because they hated him. They hated the claims that he made. They hated the things that he taught. It was hatred that lay underneath their unbelief of Jesus. If Jesus had come down from the cross right at this moment, they would have hated him as much as they did before. In fact, Jesus does not come down from the cross because he has a better plan. He's going to stay on the cross and actually die and be buried in the earth. And on the third day, he will come forth of his own initiative from the dead with resurrection power. And that's a far greater miracle. And these very individuals mocking him, saying, come down and we'll believe. Many of them continued to disbelieve even after the greater miracle of his resurrection had, in fact, occurred. So they're saying, let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down. In their minds, any Messiah worthy of the name will show his Messiahship by avoiding death in this way. By avoiding the indignity of the cross, by coming down from the cross and saving his own skin. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Verse 32, they're not the only ones who are insulting him. It says, and those who were crucified with him were casting the same insult at him. So... There's a guy on his right and his left. They are bandits, guilty of sedition against uh, Rome. Uh, Aslan, in his book, Zealot, uh, makes some good points about these thieves and what their sin was. Uh, They weren't just guilty of petty theft. These were bandits. The same word is used to describe them as is used to describe Barabbas, who was a rebel against Rome. And so these thieves who are dying also, they're being crucified also, they're piling on and beginning to cast the same insult uh, against Jesus. In Luke 23, verse 39, one of these bandits or thieves says to Jesus, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And they're insulting him for the fact that he claimed to be the Christ and yet he's allowing this indignity this crucifixion to happen to him. We do know, however, from the other gospel accounts that one of these bandits, one of these thieves, had a change of heart and began to... God quickened his heart and he began to take a closer look at Jesus and the way Jesus was responding to all that was happening and... He had an illumination. And while he himself is being crucified, he's looking at Jesus and he comes to the conclusion that he is, in fact, a king. Isn't that amazing? And how this must have outraged the religious leaders and others who wanted Jesus dead. Here they are throwing their best against Jesus 
and he's hanging there in utter humiliation and shame and gasping for air. And a bandit who's dying next to him comes to the conclusion, you are a king. And he actually says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he's no theologian at this point, but he's actually amazingly come to a great conclusion. You are a king and somehow, some way beyond death, you are going to come into your kingdom. And when you do, can you remember me? And Jesus said, I will. And today you're going to be with me in paradise. And if you're, if you're thinking about, man, I want to I persuade people that Jesus is the Son of God, none of us would have drawn it up this way. We'll have Him hanging on a cross naked in other humiliation and shame. And yet that's what God did. And that's the moment when this bandit begins to look at Jesus saying, He is a king. I've been wrong about Him. And He believed in Jesus. It's the way... God is. We try to dress up the gospel and make it more appealing to, to people. Man, just preach the gospel. Share the gospel and all of its scandal with the people that you come in contact with. And God will do the work of quickening the hearts of people to help them to see the truth about Jesus. That's what happens here. Jesus then cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Go down to verse 37 just for the sake of time, it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry. He uttered a loud cry. Mark does not tell us what it is that he says in this loud cry. But in John 19, verse 30, John tells us that what Jesus said in that loud cry are the words, It is finished. It is completed. It is done. Jesus cries out loudly. Someone gasping for air, weakened, by crucifixion, to be able to bellow out a loud cry like this is really nothing short of supernatural. But he bellows this out. It is finished. It is finished. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus then said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then in John 19, verse 30, John tells us that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That brings us to 3 p.m. on this good Friday. Mark tells us that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew's Gospel tells us that there was a great earthquake, so, so great that the rocks were split in two. Uh, that's not the kind of earthquake where anyone is left standing during it and when it's done. This is a massive earthquake. Everyone's on the ground at this point of the narrative. The sun has become obscured. It's been dark from 12 noon to 3 p.m., and now this great earthquake has occurred now that Jesus has breathed his last the Roman centurion would know this is no ordinary crucifixion and this is no ordinary person being crucified here. That brings us to the eighth and final development and that is that Jesus dies in a way. He dies in a way that proves to the centurion that He was surely the Son of God. 
It says in Mark 15:39, And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way that Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, we know this centurion saw a lot. He heard a lot. He heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He heard him say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. He has heard Jesus bellow out the words, it is finished. He has heard Jesus say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This centurion has observed the darkness that is over the face of the land from the noon hour to 3 p.m., And he's now witnessing and experiencing the earthquake right as Jesus is breathing his last. Matthew's gospel tells us that the centurion and the others who were with him are observing these things. It was more than just one thing that they were observing. Um, But Mark focuses on only one thing. Of all those things that the centurion saw and experienced, Mark simply says, when he saw the way that Jesus breathed his last. He said, surely this man was the Son of God. There was something that the centurion observed about the way that Jesus breathed his last that the centurion found persuasive. You were to talk to the centurion, he he would say, you know, there were a lot of amazing things that happened, but, but it was when he breathed his last and I saw the way he did it that's when I had my epiphany and I knew, I knew who he was. What was it about the way that Jesus breathed his last that was so persuasive to this centurion? Let me let John MacArthur unpack this for us. He says this beautifully in his book, The Murder of Jesus. MacArthur says it this way, When Jesus finally expired on the cross... It was not with a wrenching struggle against his killers. He did not display any frenzied death throes. His final passage into death, like every other aspect of the crucifixion drama, was a deliberate act of his own sovereign will, showing that to the very end, he was sovereignly in control of all that was happening. He goes on to say this, John says, bowing his head, He gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. Quietly, submissively, Jesus simply yielded up his life. Everything had come to pass exactly as he said it would. Not only Jesus, but also his killers and the mocking crowd, together with Pilate, Herod, and the Sanhedrin, all had perfectly fulfilled the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God to the letter. And thus, Christ calmly and majestically displayed his utter sovereignty to the end. For this centurion to say this man was the Son of God, he's saying this man, he, he is king. And embodied in that realization, as he saw the way he breathed his last, like no one took his life from him, he gave up his life. He chose the moment that he would die. And the centurion realizes he is king, He is sovereign and everything that has happened has happened because he's allowed it to happen. It's all under his control. He died as a sovereign in perfect control of his circumstances. When you piece together the contributions of the various gospel writers, 
you can kind of get a sequence of of events in terms of what the centurion experienced. We know from Matthew's gospel that he and the others with him became very frightened. They're freaked out by the earthquake and all that has transpired. But then in Luke's gospel, Luke tells us that he glorified God. So he moved past the terror and the fear and actually began literally glorifying God and praising God. The New American Standard translators translate this as he was praising God, glorifying God. So this is not a conclusion he arrives at birthed in fear. He experiences terror, but then moves beyond that and begins to glorify and to praise God. In Luke's gospel, he said, certainly this man was righteous. He concludes with certainty that Jesus was not just innocent, but he is righteous. This is not a tentative conclusion. Certainly This is a righteous man. I don't need to know anything about him other than what I have witnessed over the last few hours. And I know based on what I have seen with my eyes and heard with my ears that with absolute certainty, this is a righteous man. And in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel, he says, certainly this man was the son of God. This man is who he said that he was. And again, embodied in that conclusion that he was the Son of God, the centurion is acknowledging the fact that Jesus was not a helpless victim here. Jesus has been in control the whole time. He is not a helpless victim, but a sovereign sufferer. He gave up his life the very moment he wanted to. Which, think about it, Jesus could have been put on the cross and he could have said, you know what, I'm out of here. And he could have died five seconds later and avoided all the suffering. But he intentionally stayed on that cross and stayed alive and experienced what he experienced. And then when it was finished, he made the decision, it's time to release my spirit. He died as a sovereign in total control. And when the centurion saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is the Son of God. We observe here, guys, that Christ's death was not an interruption to God's plan. It was His plan. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. We also observe and the narrative this morning that Christ desires to reveal Himself to us as sinners through His death. Through His death, we see His love. We see His trust of His Father. We see His surrender. We see His sovereignty. We see His amazing self-restraint in ways we would have never been able to witness apart from His death. And ultimately, through His death, He shed His blood so that He could keep His appointment with sinners like the centurion and you and I and be able to bring forgiveness and salvation to all of us. Amen? Jesus endured all that He endured to keep His appointment with that centurion and He endured all He endured to keep His appointment with you and with me. What a Savior. What a Savior that we have. It was His love that held Him on that cross. And all of us this morning through this message are standing right next to the centurion at the foot of the cross 
we've observed his conclusions about Jesus. What is your conclusion? What is your conclusion? Let's pray together. If you're here today and you've never come to the conclusion that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, my prayer is that God would touch your heart and you would arrive at that conclusion by the grace of God today, this moment. But if you are a believer in Jesus already, look at the lengths that He went through to keep His appointment, His saving appointment with you and realize how loved you are. There is no other Savior anywhere that can love you like this. He is a Savior who will never let you down and who will give you forgiveness whenever you let Him down. And He died to be able to bring that forgiveness to you. Whatever else you're worshiping and following, it cannot hold a candle to this Savior. And if Jesus was willing to go to these lengths to keep His appointment with this centurion, we also need to look around at other centurions that are in our lives and ask to what lengths am I willing to go to to keep my appointment with those who are lost that I come in contact with each day, that I might put Jesus on display and reveal Him to them through the life that I lead, the kind of person I am in Jesus, and through the Gospel words that I speak as I give them the message of hope and redemption through this amazing Savior. Lord, we... Thank You for Your revelation of Yourself through all that You have done for us, Your miracles, Your healings, and Your teaching, and also through Your death. What a Savior we have, Lord. Give us fresh eyes to see this amazing Savior You are. May we follow You more deeply, believe in You more truly, worship You more passionately, and speak of You more earnestly to many. We thank You, Lord, for the opportunity to give of our offerings to You. Receive these funds, Lord, and do much with them for the glory of Jesus. We give ourselves to You in His name. And all God's people said,